Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study the book of Numbers and the Wilderness Wanderings, Numbers chapter 25 today, as we talk about culture canceling culture. Now that has been a phrase, cancel culture has been a phrase or a slogan that's been flying around our nation over the last few weeks and months and years, and we've seen, we're seeing it more and more. And uh, we want to talk about a little bit of how that relates to the Bible and how the Bible relates to that, that concept of canceling culture. And we look at Numbers 25, and we feel like there's this movement toward the promised land, and we're getting to that moment. And if you remember where we've been, Balaam and Balak have been trying to uh, curse the children of Israel because Balak, the Moabite king, wants to go in and destroy uh, the, the people of Israel. And there's, there's this victory that's occurred that the children of Israel didn't even know about, where God would not allow Balaam to curse, curse the children of Israel. And in the process of those, those small victories, there's going to be a, a, a new battle that arises. In fact, it reminds me of uh, 1944, the Battle of the Bulge, where Patton, General Patton said, after, after a few victories, he said, we can still lose the war. He, he understood that this is not over. In fact, it's probably, uh, you know, that Yogi Berra saying, it, it ain't over till it's over. You know, Israel could have used a little bit of Patton's vigilance and Yogi Berra's wisdom in their nation at this moment. Because what they did not realize is that Moab and Midian were still wrestling with, how do we stop a force that just is unstoppable at this moment? What can we do to, to thwart Israel? We can't get them cursed, but is there anything else that we can do? And as the story unfolds in Numbers chapter 25, we're going to see the nation of Israel. If we remember back into... Uh, the previous chapters with the Balaam, the Balaam oracles, the Balaam speeches, the nation of Israel, we've learned God is faithful to them. God is going to be central and is central. He is in the midst of them. He is their warrior. He is their king. And he is present in the midst. He is going to be the one who dictates the laws, the, the life, the do's, the don'ts, the worship for the children of Israel. He is in their midst. And so they follow after God. And God is not going to curse them or forsake them. He is faithful. He's not a liar. He's not fickle. He's not going to change his mind. And so the nation of Israel, when you look at it, their culture, their identity flowed out of their relationship, their covenant relationship with Jehovah. He was the central. He was everything. He dictated everything. He was and had that right because he was their master. He was the one who brought them out of bondage. He was the one who gave them their freedom. And now he, because of their redemption, has the right to make these. And they've entered into as well these covenant relationships with him, whether it be through his promise of the Abrahamic covenant or theirs with the Mosaic covenant saying, if we will do these things, God blesses us. And so they will, will follow after God's laws and God's plan. And so... Remember that the nation of Israel's culture, their identity flows out of their covenant relationships with God. Moab and Midian, they're looking and they're saying, we've got to take a different strategy. Now, we know the phrase, if you can't beat them, join them. So what do Moab and Midian do? They're not going to seek to join Israel. They're not going to put themselves, Balak's not going to put himself under, usurp himself under the king of Israel, the God of Israel, but rather they're going to change it a little bit. They're going to say, if you can't beat them, get them 
Get the Israelites to accept and join you. Get them to become like Moabites, like Midianites, to accept your culture, to accept your ways. And in doing so, it's going to cause other issues. If you can't get the sovereign God, is is basically the philosophy that they're going to take here. If you can't get the sovereign God to curse his children and show himself unfaithful to them, then get the children to be unfaithful to the sovereign God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? God's not going to be unfaithful to us. God has kept his promises. He keeps his word and will continue to do so. But what do we as his children do? We tend to be unfaithful to our sovereign God. And so Moab and Midian and their alliance, is go- they're going to take this strategy into Numbers chapter 25. They're going to seek to work at Israel's culture, to make a cultural shift, to change their culture and cancel it out. Cancel the unique culture that they have with God. And they do so by getting them to turn from God because Israel's unique culture is based on their identity and their relationship with God. So if we can get them to fudge on their relationship with God, on their identities with him, then maybe we can figure out something. They don't know what exactly is going to happen. They're just taking some of this thought and this new strategy into a new type of battle, more of a spiritual battle than a physical one. You know, we're seeing that today. The same philosophy, this, this new cancer, cancer culture, nice, cancel culture, it is a cancer, but a cancel culture movement, the idea of transforming or redefining or canceling a nation's culture, it's not a new strategy. In fact, just this week in the, the Washington Post, March 10th, it, they, they wrote, cancel culture, the phenomenon of promoting the canceling of people, brands, or even shows and movies due to what some consider to be offensive or problematic remarks or ide- ideologies is nothing new. In fact, in the article, it goes on to quote Dr. Jill McCorkle, who is a professor of sociology at Villanova. She said this, cancel culture is an extension of a, uh, of, or a contemporary evolution of a much bolder set of social processes that we can see in the form of banishment. She said they're designed to reinforce the set of norms. The question has to come out then, who's setting the norms? Who dictates those norms that causes banishment or causes something to be canceled or put somebody out? And you can read articles after articles on this concept. Even, even people who are not conservatives are starting to say this cancel culture thing is not good for our culture. And we look and, and we see this, but it is, they're right. They're right in this concept. It's not new. It is not a new strategy. In fact, you can go all the way back in the Bible, the Tower of Babel. What did the people want to do? God says disperse. They say, no, let's stay together. Let's be one. Let's all have the same identity, the same culture, the same togetherness, and we'll be as great as the gods because if we can do this, we're going to be all powerful. We'll be able to ascend. And God says, no, Babylon tried to do it. Assyria, Greece. We had the Hellenization movement with Greece. Remember, Alexander the Great wanted the entire known world to speak Greek, to act Greek, to be Greek. He wanted it to be one world under Greek rule and Greek culture and Greek philosophy. 
Rome would do the same thing. And so we look, and it is nothing new. Even now, as we look at this new perspective of globalism, that we're going to be one united world, it has roots in this same philosophy, this same ideology, that we don't need the diversity of cultures. We, we all need to have the exact same perspective on everything. And it's interesting as a culture, we have to look and say, you know, there's some truth to that. There is, a, there, is a, there is a dominating force who says, here is the exact way you are to live. Here's what you are to do. That's, that's God. It's through his word. But in our culture, in our society, it's not God who's setting, setting the norms. In fact, we've just heard of, you know, uh, congressmen saying the will of God has no place in American politics. When we start hearing that, we start to, as believers, we cringe we get nervous because we, we understand that God's word is to be the norm. God's word is to be the standard and it is to be what we follow. But this concept of globalism, this is, it's no new strategy. This canceling out of, of values, of family, of conservative thought, it's no new strategy. It has been around for years. Their, their desire is uh, the desire is by many to merge our cultures into one coexisting society. That's dangerous. In religion, we call that syncretism. It is the bringing together of different religions. In fact, the, the Catholics did this when they would, uh, back in the, the 1500s and earlier and later even, uh, merging cultures. Uh, when we went to Mexico City, we saw this, where the, the Mayan gods were merged with the Christian uh, icons. And those different areas were brought together. Why? So that they didn't have to dominate the people by force, but they did it through religion. They syncretized the two religions. In philosophy, we call it globalism, or in culture, we call it globalism. And this, this concept of globalism, that we're all going to be one under this great set of norms, that right now the people who are dictating those norms are not following after principles of Scripture. And for us as believers, that's a problem because our identity is not based upon pop culture. It is not based upon mob rule or social media driven agendas. It is to be based upon Jesus Christ. We identify with him and because his identity is in us, we are to follow after his norms, after his ways, after his agendas, not after the world, not after a government, not after uh, pop culture. We follow after Christ. And that's what rubs us. That's the difficulty we face in our culture when they're trying to cancel out thoughts that are Christ-like. When they're trying to take out ideas that are conservative family values that we would hold to, not just because they're my women wish, but because they are the scriptural words of Jesus Christ or of God the Father that we are supposed to obey. For Israel, this becomes an issue. Because their unique culture is based upon Jehovah and the covenant relationship they have with him, to syncretize their culture, to merge it religious-wise and even, even culturally, is to, uh, with another, it's, it's being unfaithful to God because God is at the center. God drives everything for them. He is their laws. He is their, their life. He is their do's. He is their don'ts. He is their worship. So that then invites judgment upon them. It forfeits blessing in their life. So this is the strategy then 
that Moab and Midian employ against Israel. If we can get them to come to our side, if we can get them to start liking what we like and rejecting what God rejects, then it's going to bring judgment. It will forfeit some of their blessings. And maybe then God will deal with them. And then maybe we'll have the ability to get in and get our leverage that we need in order to conquer. So they employ this strategy, and that's what happens as we come to Numbers 25. Balaam and Balak have departed from the mountains, and meanwhile, down in the valley, in the plains of Moab, rests Israel. But they're not resting, we find out in Numbers chapter 25. It brings us Israel off the mountaintop as well, because Israel was up there being blessed and saying, nothing can be thwarted against them. My grace will be on them. My blessings are upon them. And down in the valley, Israel, we see in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, they abode there in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So now in the camp, in the camp of Israel, there is sin in the camp. And as as God looks down, and as Moses hears about this, there's going to be some adjustments that need to be made. But look, look what happens here. There is a willful participation by all of Israel in this immorality. It says that the, the camp, the people began, notice it's the people, it's not just one or two, the people began. And then they, verse two, they called the people, and the people did eat. And Israel, verse three, joined himself. As a, as a collective unit, there is a, there is a large movement. Now, granted, it's not all 2.5 million people that are there. But there is enough of a movement in the camp to start to commit the, the whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So it starts with this physical immorality that is occur, occurring there. But look how it moves forward. It doesn't just stay there. In fact, the text, the text isn't just about, okay, we're going to punish Israel because they, there were some who had, who had fornicated with the daughters of Moab, and we're just going to deal with that. That's only part of it. It is an agenda that's moving forward. It is Moab creeping in. It is Midian creeping in. And how are they doing it? They do it through moving from immorality to feasting and to sacrificing and worshiping a pagan god. Look at the progression, verse 1, 2, 3. They, uh, they committed whoredom. Verse 3, they called the people, they being Moab, Midian, called the people unto sacrifices of their gods, not Jehovah, and the people did eat and bow down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal. So now you have this movement that has occurred. Moab seduces and assimilates the, the Israelites through their physical and sexual appetites. They get them to accept their cultural practices, their feastings, their eating together, their pagan styles of worship in order to do that rather than trying to conquer them. They're trying to syncretize. They're trying to cancel their culture out in order to cause problems with them and their God. And so this agenda that they have is working. Because now God looks, and what does it say at the end of verse 3? That the wrath, the anger of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It's very similar to Israel and Mount Sinai. Do you remember back with the, the golden calf? 
While Israel, while the children of Israel have no idea what's going up on top of the mountain, Moses is up on the mountain, he's up there, and he's receiving revelation about the blessings that are going to be upon the children of Israel. We just have Balaam up on the mountain receiving all these revelations about the blessings that are going to be upon Israel. But the children of Israel have no clue what's happening and what's being set up top. But down below in the valley, what are they both doing? Both times they're, they're worshiping pagan deities. And they're not just worshiping pagan deities, they're practicing immorality. And even what's interesting is the two pagan deities, though the, the golden calf, is a, it's a calf, the picture of Baal, Baal was often idolized as a bull. So you have all these similarities that are occurring between Mount Sinai and now here in the plains of Moab. We often are reminded in scriptures of the full wonder of God's grace, and yet it's often put right next to that incorrigible propensity in our lives to sin. And that, that juxtaposition, that placing next to each other draws that stark contrast. Like you're thinking, wow, Israel's blessed. Nobody's going to conquer them. Wait, they're committing whoredom with Moab? Wait, th- what's going on here? Because there's that propensity in our lives to sin. In spite of God's bl- blessing his people, the people show They're weak, sinful character, and they're not the only ones. We can cast a long nose and a shadow at Israel, and we can say, shame, shame, shame. But how many times in our life do we go from the blessings of God to our sinful fleshly appetites? It is a battle in our lives. We have to fight it, and we fight it in our culture because our culture around us is not basing its norms upon God's word. And so we see it happening all around us. It becomes enticing. It becomes insightful. So Israel, it says in verse 3, join themselves to Baal Peor. So now he's there with Baal. Baal, uh, they bound itself. It literally means they initiated or were initiated into the mysteries of. So now all of a sudden they're partaking in the mystical aspects of Baal worship. It's not just a couple guys committing immorality. This is the people entering into pagan worship. When we talk about Baal, Baal was the Canaanite fertility and vegetation god. He brought with them, the idea is he brought the rain. He was the one who who fertilized the ground with the rain. And then the seeds that would pop up are all the production of Baal. And so Baal was that kind, benevolent god who would give back to the people, and and the people liked it. And so because, uh, and we have to remember, Baal becomes the primary antagonist against the people of God. This is the first time in the Bible that Baal is mentioned. This is the first instance we have with this Canaanite deity that the children of Israel are going to struggle with. Baal was Israel's thorn in the flesh all the way through the second kingdom, all the way through David's reign and Solomon's reign and Saul's reign and all the bad kings and good kings. You constantly see Baal popping up. Ahab, Baal worshiper, well, Jezebel, I mean, priestess of Baal. You get all of that coming in and out. So why did Israel battle with this idolatry right away? Well, think about it. It it makes sense to an unregenerated mind. To someone who's not saved, idolatry, and it makes sense because you you are able, it appealed to what you wanted. You wanted material well-beings, not moral and spiritual goodness. How's this going to help me? Oh, wow, it's going to give me crops. It's going to make my, my vines grow better. It's going to make my animals be better. And this is great. You know, so it's something you see, it's tangible. It provided those tangible symbols that people could relate to. 
But the interesting thing is, remember what we're told. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things that we can't see, touch. We, we have this faith in God, but they wanted things that they could touch, that they could see, that they, they could hold. They, they would follow after idolatry because idolatry tends to be polytheistic, which for Israel, there is no other God but God, but they would gravitate toward this because what did it make them feel? What did it make it seem? We're tolerant. We are enlightened. We, we accept, we know that, the, that you worship the other gods and that's okay, but this is our God. No, there is one God. And we, we find that, we, we make those statements even as believers today, don't we? It's okay that you worship the other gods, but this is, this is our God. No, it's not our God. This is the God, the one and only God. There's not other gods. They, they don't exist. There is one true God. And so, so we, have to, we have to be careful even in how we talk about it. Well, even like modern practices, the Israels, they felt social pressure to conform all around them. They were to get rid of all of these, but they left them around even in the conquest. And now it's all around in the, the pressure to conform to society, to conform to these new ideologies, this tolerance, this coexistence with us, with us Baal worshipers or with us Molech worshipers or us Ashtar worshipers. You need to be okay with this, Israel, and you should be tolerant. And there's this pressure for them to, to give in. Individual or idolatrous worship was a normal and integral part of the culture of other people's so friendship with them could easily lead to social influence and assimilation that naturally included participation in idolatry. That's what we're told. We're told to be careful in Exodus chapter 34. The children of Israel were told, you should destroy the altars, break down the images, cut down their groves, for thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and go a-whoring after their gods and do sacrifice after their gods and eat of their sacrifices and you take of their daughters and of your sons and you go whoring after their gods. Sound familiar to verses 1, 2, and 3 in Numbers chapter 25 here? God told them, Moses told the people that this is going to be the propensity if you start going after other gods. And there was this idolatrous pressure by the people to give in because it's all around. And what can we do to, to take a stand is hard. It's difficult, but yet God says, do this. I am a jealous God and you be zealous for me. And he, he's, he's, he's saying that perhaps probably the, the most attraction in idolatry often blends various sensual simulations, stimulations, excuse me, with the fulfillment of basic human needs. Think about it. Baal worship was very uh, sensual, physically, appetites, sexually. All, and it promised all of that. So you could have, you don't have, to, you don't have to, to live this type of stringent life. Man, you can enjoy all the physical pleasures that you want. And it's worship to our God. To somebody who is weak in the flesh, to somebody who is not a follower of God and, or a follower of Jesus Christ, man, that sounds, it sounds appetizing. It sounds spiritually appetizing. And, and if you're looking there and saying, well, no, no, never, not me, not me. Let's be honest. Think about even before you were saved. If someone told you, man, you could, you could go to worship and you could enjoy 
feasting all the time. You can enjoy sensuality all the time. You could, you know, do all of that stuff and still be good with God. In fact, he would be pleased with you if you did it all. To her flesh, that sounds, that sounds appealing. And that's why Baal worship was appealing to the children of Israel. All the desires of humanity were expected and they were going to be expected to be met. And they had that. So basically what it was was Baal worship or idolatry going after a foreign god. It required less faith and it required more flesh. And if we're honest, that appeals to the basis of our, basis of our human instincts. We want, we want that. So it's, we, can, we can shame, shame the Israelites, but Satan knows what he's doing. He knows how to attack. He attacks the flesh through the world. It's, it, it's why, it's why the, the New Testament writers talk about watch out for the world, the flesh, the devil, because he's attacking. He's going after us. And joining with Baal, what did the Israelites do? They broke the first two commandments. Have no other gods before me. Have no graven images. They're, they broke both of them, and that's going to cause God to react. God is never unfaithful to his children, but his children, through their unfaithfulness, provoke God. And so the anger, the wrath of the Lord is kindled. Does that, does that sound familiar? It should, because in the Balaam stories, we've heard that four times now, that the wrath of God was against Balaam. Was, wrath was kindled against his donkey. Balak's wrath or anger was kindled against Balaam. And now we have God's anger is kindled against Israel. So now every member of that, that whole story has faced someone's wrath. But the wrath you don't want to be facing is God's wrath. And that's what they're facing. Israel's defecting from their loyalty. They're defecting from their allegiance to God who saved them out of the bondage of Israel or Egypt. The one who led them free from his wrath. And idolatry is not going to go unreproved. The sentence for this sin is going to be death. And that's what we have as we get to verses 4 and 5. And, and we see the sentence of death for, of, of death for the sin that, that the people occurred. God tells Moses to representatively kill the leaders of the people. Look in verse 4. Lord spake to Moses and said, take all the heads, the chiefs of the tribes of the people and hang them before the Lord against the sun. It's, there's some debate on whether or not it's hang or what kind of execution it was, but it's an execution that's before the Lord uh, against the sun and the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. So Moses, you're going to kill the, those who are representative leaders who are here. It's going to be a public display because this is a, a heinous sin against God. And so you're going to do it before the sun. And if you follow through, the anger of the Lord will be turned away from Israel. So at this point, Moses is given a direct command to say, here's how you're going to deal with it. You're going to deal with the leaders who should have stopped this in the first place. The ones who should have been proactive and saying, no, we should not be doing this. You should not be going after the daughters of Moab and deal with those leaders and deal with it in a public way and deal with it. And we're going to be okay. But we find out in verse nine, there's a plague. We find out in uh, 26 verse one, that the plague is going to be stopped. So did Moses not follow through or did God not keep his word? What happened here? It would consume, this plague was going to consume all of Israel unless God's wrath was appeased. 
And so we have here the question, did God keep his word? Well, verse 5 then gives us a little bit because it seems a little confusing. Like, what's happening here? Verse 5, we have Moses conveying a different message to the leaders. God says, kill the representative heads who should have been stopping this and should have dealt with it. And what does Moses tell the people to do? Moses said to the judges of Israel, slay you every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. Now, he's going to deal with the issue, but he's going to deal with it differently than God does. He's going to take a pragmatic approach. I can't. How can I kill all the leaders? If we kill all the leaders, we're going to have problems, and maybe they didn't, weren't involved in it. So let's pragmatically, let's kill all of the individuals who have joined themselves, who are actively participating because they did the crime, they need to do the time. We don't want to, but that's not what God had said. So he deals with the issue, just not the way God says it. Was Moses, some, some of the commentators speculate and they say, was Moses just tired of dealing with the people? Was he at the point as he's winding up his, his years, he knows he's not going into the promised land. He's like, you know what? These people, they're just stubborn. Here we go again, another generation. So there's some speculation. We don't really know. Did he feel that his way was a better approach than God's? Was he being just pragmatic about it and taking that approach to it? We know that Moses has, uh, Moses has leaders kill those who are actively involved in pagan worship. So he does do something. But does he do exactly what God wants? Is he obedient to the way God? And it, it does not seem that way. And because of that, there is a plague that starts to occur in Israel. And it's not, not just because Moses didn't do that, although his, if he would have done what God said, it would have been appeased. But the plague is because of the immorality spiritually and uh, physically of the, of the children of Israel. So all of a sudden, in the midst of this, plague starting, rampant sin going on, there's this completely shocking situation that occurs in verses 6 through 9. The, Moses is seen weeping along with some of the other leaders in the people at the tabernacle in verse number 6. And while they're doing that, they, and, and it's interesting, I wrote this down from one of the commentators, uh, Ian Duguid is his name. He said, when they should have been standing for God and doing the hard and difficult thing, executing the leaders according to God's word, they are seeming immobilized by fear and dread. Like, what is happening? Our world is falling apart. Israel is just going to shambles. All of this is happening. What can we do? America is falling apart. America is going to shambles. What can we do? It just looks like there's no hope. And they're weeping over Israel, but, but they're not doing what God told them to do. They're not enacting the, the, the justness that God said to enact. And while this is happening... While they're lamenting, and that's the word here for the weeping, they are lamenting in sadness for Israel's sin, maybe, or the plague that even is now enacted upon Israel. The the scriptures aren't clear, and I think intentionally, because they're probably lamenting both. While that is happening, there's an interesting dynamic. Remember earlier I drew that parallel between Sinai and this situation here in Balaam? Remember in Mount Sinai when Moses comes down from the mountain, he looks at what is happening with the immorality and the, the pagan worship. And he looks and he says, this is not going to happen. Who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites respond. And they, they, um, they earn themselves that special place because they go after and they kill all of those who were involved in this. Now we have Moses being directed by God. He comes down. He sees all this happening. And we have him sitting there weeping, sending out some people to kill some of them, but not following after what God has said. 
And there's just this, this interesting dynamic that plays out here. He's not fulfilling everything that he should have been, though he is being active in, in some of it. While all of that is happening, there comes this Simeonite, as we're told in verses, uh, I think, 15 and 16. We'll see it in a minute. Simeonite demonstrating this shocking behavior. They're lamenting the sad situation of Israel, the plague, and one man saunters through camp past the door of the tabernacle. But he's not alone. Now, think about this in relationship to the tabernacle. The door of the tabernacle is located on the east. Moses, Aaron, the priests. Now, Aaron's gone, so it's now uh, Eliezer instead of Aaron. You have Moses and Eliezer, and the priests are there. And Eliezer's son, Phinehas, is now moved to the position of gatekeeper. He is there, and all the Levites are supposed to do what? They're supposed to protect the tabernacle. So this is at the front of the door there that this, this situation occurs, near the entrance of the tabernacle where the people are at. The Simeonite is, the Simeon is on the south side. Now they are the ones closest to Moab. They're generally in that area. And you have this Simeonite. Notice it says, uh, verse 6, And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren in front of his, in the midst of the camp, a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And we learn, we learn later on, verses 14, 15, that he's from the tribe of Simeon. His name is Zimri. And as we're there, this man's not alone. He has his Midianite uh, woman with him seeking to either marry her or just have a, a physical relationship with her. But we know that this is a brazen action against God. In the face of people lamenting over sin and over God's punishment, here comes this guy sauntering along out there in front of the tabernacle with his new girl from Midian, and they're just walking around. His name was Zimri. He's from the house of Simeon. Simeon was located at the south and uh, the east. It should not see the the west. Uh, South and west of the gate of the tabernacle. That's what I put down there. So they're located to the south and west. So he's not even in where his camp is supposed to be. He's just wandering through there. And this man felt no inhibitions about walking around town with his new girlfriend. The woman, her name was Cosby. Uh, and she's the daughter of a Midianite chief or a Midianite king. Now they're looking, is this a political alliance? Is this, you know, providing for me? Why would they, why would they ally themselves? Food, safety, security for the lineage. We don't have to worry about them coming against us in battle. That's why Solomon and David took different, or Solomon, I should say, took so many different wives as alliances so that they wouldn't be attacked from other nations. This, this has been happening for decades and generations and, and centuries that political marriages are done for alliance sake. So are they, are they going through with that? The intermarriage held the perspective here of peace of a place in the land without pain. It seems to offer comfort, but in reality, it brings turmoil. Maybe the Simeonites and some of these other Israelites are thinking, man, we don't want to fight Moab. We don't want to fight all the other people. So if we all just accept each other's culture, if we all just do what each other does and find some common ground and make it all work together, then maybe we'll all be okay. And it won't be a problem, but it does not bring turmoil or brings turmoil it does not bring living or life. It brings death. Can't we all just get along? Haven't we heard that? You know, can we peacefully coexist together? Canceling a culture of God-centeredness 
Think about it. Canceling the culture of God-centeredness is a foundational element to globalism. That's what we're battling with today. How are we going to get all these nations to, to all be on the same page? You're going to have to get rid of a God perspective. You're going to have to try and obliterate that. That was the same thing that was happening. If we can pull them away from Jehovah worship, we can get us all to be on the same page and we'll all be, we'll all be good. Their names are made public. They're a public example for Israel to learn from. It's not how I want my kids to be remembered. It's a form of discipline that occurs. And it's always been unfashionable to deal with sin through discipline. As a parent, we're told to just let our children grow, do the free-range parenting thing, and they'll figure it out for themselves. You know, they're, they're smart, they're good, let it, let it happen. And discipline even for parenting is becoming unpopular. Biblical discipline, I should say, is becoming unpopular in our culture. You know, as leaders, as police authorities, we're, they're, they're being questioned. They're being second-guessed all the time. Who gives you the right to make that call? What authority do you have? And, and there's this constant push, and so people are backing away from even wanting to enforce discipline and justice because there's a fear from the mob that they might, you know, be themselves persecuted or they might themselves be ostracized or canceled out. We see this perspective happening, the same thing that's happening with Israel. And, and now you have, even as a church, we're told in Matthew 18 to deal with unconfessed, brazen sin in the camp. We're told, we're told to deal with it. But sadly, many shepherds have either went to one extreme or the other. They use it to oppress and beat up their sheep. Church discipline is not to beat up people. Church discipline is not to put you under the thumb and say, if you do this, I'm going to make sure everybody knows about it. That's, that's not what the purpose is. It is a recovery tool. It is designed by God to, to put back into check, to bring back into line and into the fold so that there is protection and care and concern from the body. But sadly, on the flip side, in the spirit of tolerance, some have tolerated way too much sin. And that is not keeping the body pure. And we are, we are supposed to be a pure entity. We're supposed to be dealing with that. We must realize that church discipline is a necessary spiritual recovery tool given to us by God that must be enacted in our churches. It's not popular. It's not cool because it does seem intolerant. It does seem mean-spirited. It does seem harsh, but yet God uses it. God used it even here, even though it's not the church with Israel He made things publicly known that was just a brazen, unconfessed, I don't care, going to sin in the face of God type sin. And and it was dealt with. It is intended for both to, to, excuse me, it is intended to both recover the failing, those who have sinned, but it's also to dissuade others from falling. To remind us that sin has consequences and we need to be holy in our walk and in our life. What we are not just staying away from, but what we are pursuing after. So we we look at it, discipline pursued out of a passionate zeal for God's honor is vital to the spiritual health of our community and any community. To look and say, we need to live according to God's norms, God's standards, God's culture. That's what we must be doing. So the shocking situation comes full, full circle here. Zimri and Cosby dance through the streets. And what happens? That zeal that is supposed to be among us to be holy, that fire builds up in Phineas. Phineas is the gatekeeper. 
He is the, we, we learn in the text, he's the son of uh, Eliezer, the grandson of Aaron. He is going to enact. He rises up. He takes his javelin or a spear, and he is going to pursue after this couple who's just going their own way, and he's going to pursue them to the, the text says her tent. It is a place, it's a specific term that's used here. It has cultic implications. It is a place that they were going in order to participate in Baal worship. There was going to be a sensual relationship that was used here that occurred so that they could worship Baal. And they're in the midst of the camp, and Phineas is not going to tolerate that. They were committing both sexual and spiritual immorality at this time. And we know from the text, the two are close enough for one spear to do the job. Look at, look at what it says. And he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly so that the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. He takes the spear and it's interesting in the Hebrew, he kebabs them. The, the word in Hebrew is he kebabs and her, the word for stomach is kebeh. So he kebabs through the kebeh. And it, it just, it sounds funny, but he literally, he kebabs them right through. He is that passionate about the honor and the integrity and the holiness of God. He is zealous for the jealousy of God. He wants God to be first and have the honor and the glory. Deuteronomy 18 uses that word for, for stomach as a, the form of a sacrifice or to come out of a sacrifice. So when they were pierced through, it was the, the sacrifice that needed to be made to stop the plague. We don't understand all of why that is, but we know that that is God, God accepted that as full sacrifice. And he stopped the plague, not because Moses took care of the leaders, but because Phineas found in himself the zeal and the passion for righteousness to go and to act justly. Now, when we look at this, the result of Phineas' action was the staying of the, the plague. Though the plague was stopped, it is the worst plague that occurred in the wilderness. 24,000 people had died. In fact, the only other plague that is worse in Israel's history is the one in uh, 2 Samuel 24 when David takes the census and 70,000 people die. So it is, he staves off the worst plague. But how is God going to respond to Phineas taking the law into his own hand? Because he was not commanded by God to go do this. He took it upon himself to act. Now, we know in 1 Chronicles 9 that Phineas was now the leader of the Levites who kept the gate. He protected the tabernacle. If you remember back to Numbers 3, the Levites' responsibility was guard duty around the tabernacle. Anything that was approaching that was unholy, they were to guard the tabernacle, and if necessary, to take up arms against that, which we've talked about. So now you have this couple that is living in pagan worship, pagan idolatry, pagan immorality, sauntering close and toward the tabernacle. It is his responsibility as the gatekeeper of the tabernacle and as the protector of, on guard duty of the tabernacle as a Levite to defend the sanctity of the camp of Israel. So he, he is acting within parameters that he is allowed to pursue. But please, 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 please. This is a warning. That, that This happened, okay? This is not a call for believers to take up bombs and arms and go 
raid abortion clinics and go bomb judges' homes. It's not that. Yes, should we be passionate and zealous about the killing of unborn lives? Absolutely. Should we do peaceful protests when things in our culture are going awry? Absolutely. That is great. But this is not a call to arms. Please, do not read that in. Do not believe that is not what I am saying. This is not a call to arms. But it is a call to zealously defend the honor, the holiness, the integrity of our God. And Phineas stands for righteousness. Zeal is not just this petty jealousy for our own personal wishes. I want this, I want that, so I'm going to fight really hard and make it happen. But it's a desire to do right and to protect the honor of God and God's people. To not allow the Christian culture, to allow God's culture to be canceled, but to stand. We're going to have to ask those questions. What is going to happen when we are tried to be canceled out? Are you prepared to stand zealously for God? Are you prepared to speak when you are told to shut up? Are you prepared to declare the glories of God when you are told you're not allowed to? We ought to obey God. We need to zealously defend his, his passions, his honor. Now, the special command comes from Lord, the Lord. The Lord is still working and speaking through Moses, even though Moses didn't follow through on everything. He was still lamenting. There is still a relationship there. But God's still speaking, although his time is coming to an end. But Phineas was zealous for the sake of God. He did not, God did not command Phineas to do this, but he did approve of his passion, of his zeal, of going forward. He defended, it says, he defended my honor. He has executed the disloyal and he has defended the Lord's honor. And because of this, because of these actions, that he has defended the honor, uh, that his faithfulness has made all the difference, it's because of his actions that the plague was stayed. Faithfulness may not win friends, but it will influence people. I know that sounds countercultural to what we hear. Well, we gotta, how do we figure out how to win friends and influence people? Faithfulness to God will influence that First Peter chapter 2 talks about that when they see our good works, that they may glorify the Lord in the day of visitation. When they see us handle trials and temptations and difficulties, when they see us handle hardships and, and turmoil with the zealousness of God and the holiness of God in our lives, it will influence people. We must be zealous for righteousness. He acted like me is what God is saying. God is saying, this man... He did what I would have done. He said, I was, I was enacting upon this. There was a death sentence, and he took care of it. He saw that righteousness needed to be meted out, that justice needed to occur, and he acted like me. Do we act like God? Now, granted, we don't have all the same authorities and some of the responsibilities that were back there, but do you act like God? Do I act like God in our situations, in our life, when things happen? The actions of Phineas stayed the wrath of God. A priest's work, he did the priest's work, didn't he? He stood in mediation between God and man. He enacted the sacrifice. His family heritage was one of passion. How do we develop that passion in our children? It needs to start with me. How do I see kids who are zealous 
It starts in the home. It starts with the grandparents. Look at, look at Phineas's life. His heritage was one of passion and zeal. He's a Levite. The Levites at Mount Sinai were the ones who said, we will stand for the Lord. We will go forward. We hear about this from, from different individuals of, of people around the world standing in the face of opposition. And they're going to stand toe-to-toe and live righteously and show love toward others. And God works miraculously in their lives. And then we wonder, well, why doesn't that happen with me? Am I passionately pursuing, zealously caring for the, the, the God of our universe and his honor? As the son of Eliezer, as a, the grandson of Aaron, he saw or would know about how his grandpa and how his dad were involved in the, the staving off of the plague the, that was coming against them with the rebellion of Korah. How his grandfather ran with the censer that his father had made headlong right toward death and stopped it and held it out and stood in mediation between the death sentence and the people of God. He saw and would know all of that. And he looked and said, I must, I must stand for God and his righteousness. It is who we are. He was not going to allow his culture to be eradicated, but he was going to stand for righteousness and not sit by and do nothing. And because of that, look what it says in verse 12, 13. Wherefore say the Lord said, behold, I give him a covenant of peace and he shall have it and his seed after him. His children will experience this covenant. It's a, it's a covenant of fullness, of wholeness in life. It will be your experience. It's not guaranteeing no hardships, but that in the midst of everything that Phineas and his family will find joy. They will find satisfaction. They will find fulfillment in living out the things of God. And God says, I promise that peacefulness to you. And then he says, I also promise this covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Until this point, succession was not just guaranteed to uh, Phineas. There was also Ithamar, who was also Aaron's son. Uh, in, in his line, through Eliezer, was, it, was the next pre- high priest going to come through that line? We're told here, and then in First Chronicles chapter 6, that from here on out, the priesthood, the high priesthood, the high priest would come through the line of Phineas. And so you have this, this high priesthood that's now here because of this situation. And then what's given in verses 16 through 18 is a strike down order. Moses is once again spoken to by the Lord, and he is told to wipe out the Midianites. He said, you are going to obliterate them because they use their wits to corrupt you and to beguile you. And specifically with this instance with Cosby uh, and, and the Simeonite, I just forgot his name. I could look it up, but you get the idea. The children of Israel were to collectively follow the example of Phineas. Now it wasn't just Phineas going and slaying, but the children of Israel were now to go and they were to take out the Midianites. They were going to pursue and they should not seek to bond to this pagan worship, but they should seek to eradicate the false worship. And how do they do that? By following after a Christ-centered life, God-centered life. That they are to follow after the culture that God has established. And by doing that, they will influence other cultures. The same for us as we live for a Christ and we live a Christ-centered life and a Christ-centered culture, we will influence. And that's how a culture cancels culture. We don't do it just by arguing with people. We cancel a non-God-centered culture by living a God-centered life. 
And we are required to do that. Now, ironically, this situation here, this is going to be the last thing that Moses does on this earth before he dies. By Numbers, Deuteronomy 31, this is the last thing that Moses does is wipe out the Midianites. His time on earth is ending, but Israel and God, their relationship is, is pursuing and going forward. And, and when we take this whole thing together, we learn from Revelation 2 and verse 14 that this sexual subterfuge was instigated by none other than Balaam. We thought Balaam was gone, but Balaam hatches a plan with Balak and with the kings of Midian. And it says, but I have a few things against you. Some that of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat the food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. We learn that Balaam was involved here. So Balak, Balaam, and Baal are all involved in this subterfuge to attempt to cancel and eradicate the culture of Israel, to pull them away from God so that God would deal with them and judge them and bring punishment upon them. What's interesting to this whole is we, is we wrap it up. The prophet Micah, he sums up this account. In fact, go to Micah chapter 6 with me. Micah chapter 6 is probably some of the most familiar verses in the, the book of Micah. And as the prophet is talking here, and he's seeing the same thing. This is before it's the divided kingdom. It's before Israel is taken away by Assyria. And they're seeing the pagan worship, the pagan worship of Baal. And it is, it is rampant in both Judah in the south and Israel in the north more than Judah in the south. But it's going on in there. And Micah is going to look and says, hey, do you remember Numbers 22, 23, 24, 25? Do you remember back to this story? He says, oh, my people, verse 5, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal. Remember, where are they at right now? They're at Shittim. He's, re- he's drawing it back to Numbers 25. He says that you may know the righteousness of God. He says, don't forget that. Because if you forget what happened, you're going you're gonna to walk away from the righteousness of God. That's what Israel was doing. They were walking away from the culture that God had established of righteousness, of holy living. And he says, if you will zealously live for righteousness in a culture that is not, if you're going to do that, what do you need to do? Micah helps us understand this. Micah says, okay, You want to live for righteousness in a culture that's not? Here's what you need to do. You need to make sure that you are not focused on mere virtue signaling. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. But verses 6 and 7 talk about, should I come before the Lord, the God on high, and bring burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn son for my transgressions? Uh, should I, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Should I, should I do all these things that around our culture, they look, wow, they look really religious. They look really, really important. Is that what I need to do so everybody knows that I'm righteous? I'm virtue signaling. I'm signaling to everybody how virtuous I am. We see that today. You know, let's, let's put, uh, you know, I'm going to make sure everybody knows how much money I gave to this charitable giving account. I'm going to make sure everybody knows how many times a day I go to church or how often I pray. Or we make these big, big, uh, grand accolades of ourself to other people. I do this. I wear that. I don't do this. I act this way. 
And, and it's, it's this virtue signal. God says, I want you to do those things, but not for the sake of showing everybody. Not for it to all be out. He says, if you're going to live righteously in this culture and have influence on our culture, then we need to focus on the passions of God. What does God say? He's shown us what is good. What is the right thing? What is best for us? Even in our culture today, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what the Lord doth require of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. He wants us to act righteously. He wants us, when we see injustice occurring, to champion the cause, to be involved in it. We ought to be dealing with injustices that are true in America. We ought not be sitting on the sidelines and letting somebody who is, who is not a God-fearer, a God-follower, be doing that. We ought to be championing those concepts of injustice. We need to act righteously among the unbelievers of this world. We need to love mercy. Show love. Love the mercy of God that he shows new each day. And not take it for granted and not live however we want and, and deal with God's grace and push it to the side. But we need to live and love mercy. Love to other people. Showing other people the, the love and the good works that we have. Because Christ has loved us. We've heard about that recently in our church. That believers are just like, we want to show you the love that Christ showed to us. Because we love mercy, because God is love, and he has shown us such great and wonderful love. And then he says, walk humbly with your God, to live in humble fellowship with God as the one who establishes culture. With God as the one who sets our norms. With God as the one who sets our standards. That's why we battle with culture telling us, with mob rule telling us, with social media telling us, what is right and acceptable. They do not have the authority. The one who has the authority is God, and I must daily be in humble fellowship and submission to that great God. When we look at this passage, in a culture that is attempting to cancel God's righteousness, that's what Midian and Moab were doing, our zeal for God should spur us onto righteous behavior before God and before our culture. That will change culture. Not a signing of a paper, not a canceling of a TV show, not a boycotting of a product, not an eradication of a cartoon. That does not change culture. What changes culture is what is in us. And we must... We must zealously live for the righteousness of God in our culture. That's what Phineas did. And that's what we need to do. Live for our God. Walk humbly with our God. Love mercy and act and do justice. Father God, I pray that you would help me to show love to the people around us. Lord, help us to and help me to stay the way you would want me to be, to have your standards, your righteousness before them. Lord, help it not to just be a show, but Lord, help us to have impact as our church into our community by showing love, by living righteously and demonstrating good works and the godliness that you have called us to, to help change our culture. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a good day.